How's everyone? Welcome back to Words Word Speak. This is episode five, which is proudly brought to you by Poison City Brewing. These guys have four fantastic beers, and luckily enough, for every podcast, we get a drink, Dirt and Poison. And I swear to God, it creates the best conversation. So if you're going out to a bra or to meet some guys that you don't really know, take some Dirt and Poisons with you, and you'll have the most the deepest, most sincere, meaningful conversations you've ever had. Because Durban Poison, much like Durban, brings people together. Yeah, so for episode five, we had Davey Duplessis on. Um, he's a super cool guy. He's got a whole lot of stuff he's done in his life. Best known for surviving being shot when paddling from the source of the Amazon River to the sea. Um, he sort of came on and talked his way through how he survived that. And he actually wrote a book about it. It's called Choosing to Live. Um, we'll put the, the link in the description of the video. If you're listening, go through to our YouTube, check it out, and you can go and buy his book. It's definitely worth the read. So yeah. go give him some support. Enjoy, guys. Cool. Enjoy. Davey, thanks so much for coming on, man. I know you're a busy, man. Not as busy as I should be, but <laughs> yeah. So, you... When, like your title is most known as an adventurer within South Africa. Uh, there's guys that, although you've done things like cycling from Egypt to Africa, it's Egypt to South Africa. You've done, you've done what's it like? There's ultra, not like even ultra marathons. Like you run a thousand k's at a time. You've had a lot of things going on, but guys mm-hmm. mostly know you as the guy that got shot in the Amazon and survived. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's probably the best way to kick off this podcast, just a bit of an introduction about you and going into why you decided to go to the Amazon in the first place. Yeah, so I think often your title gets pasted on you, regardless of what you think of yourself or how you try to promote yourself. So I try to promote myself as this vegan advocate, and then I used adventure to kind of create like a platform or base to give me some credibility to talk on um, topics tied to like veganism, tied to conservation. Uh, So then I thought, okay, the adventure, people all of a sudden pay attention to what I'm doing. If you can make the adventure like exciting enough, if it's like a world's first, if there seems like there is a big challenge in it, um, so I did the adventures. I started with the cycle through Africa. Then I went into the Amazon where I wanted to paddle the whole Amazon. And so were all these fueled by wanting to buy the vegan advocate side mm. of things? Or were you always like a always. born born adventurer? No, so I, this is a, I, I, I suppose I'm adventurous in like certain aspects of my life but in terms of the adventures i never i never did and enjoyed it and was like wow this is a great experience (laughs) i love this to me it was always a means to something bigger okay cool and the reality is it's like you know maybe a good analogy is if you think um if you have something important to say no one's going to listen to you until you have some credibility in some sphere of something you know, you can get like politicians who know nothing about economics but can comment on economics because they're already, someone's uh, given them a platform. Yeah. So I had to create my own platform and that I found easiest through adventure um, because it was as simple as back, you know, this was like when I started was maybe 10 years ago. 
to cycle from Egypt to South Africa is relatively unheard of. Now it's becoming more and more popular. Um, so you could say I'm doing this great feat and uh, people say, oh, wow, that's interesting. And then they want to know about your experiences. And from the um, that cycle, I realized, so when I did the cycle, I remember we got to, I think it was Sudan. So we had passed through Egypt. We had a few hairy experiences, passed through Sudan. And then I was like, this adventure stuff is pretty easy. I thought at the time. And, I, and then I was like, I said to myself, like, where is somewhere I always wanted to go? And I thought the Amazon. And I thought, well, the cycling seems pretty easy. Traveling long distances seems pretty easy. Going to remote places seems pretty easy. So why not just do the Amazon? And it was in Sudan. I just like, when you're on a bike for a long time, we were cycling like eight to 12 hours a day. You sit on your bike and pretty much every thought from your past, your present and your future comes up. So a lot of the time I was thinking about my past, like uh, just stuff in your life. And then I was thinking about what am I going to do after this? And then I thought, well, if it's easy to cycle, Bear in mind, this was quite a premature decision because I was only in Sudan. I'd only done like 2,000 Ks. And I thought, okay, well, it's been easy thus far. And I said, okay, set the goal now. This time next year, you'll be paddling the Amazon from the source to the sea. Um, finished the Africa trip. Um, and then I, when I got, I got back to Durban, uh, I just said, okay, stick with that goal. Also, I had nothing else going for me. I had no um, qualifications. No one wanted to hire me because I couldn't bring anything to the table. Um, and I'd realized that if, if I could make a really good adventure, the potential to maybe write a book, which would be you know, a source of income, maybe to bring on board a sponsor that I felt I could align with. Um, so I started to think, okay, not only can this be a platform for promoting something you believe in, it can maybe be a, a a source of revenue for developing a business, becoming a public speaker, becoming an author. Uh, so it started to tick all these boxes. And then literally a year, I think it was even less than a year, maybe 11 months after I arrived in South Africa after that cycle, I was then in the Amazon. And even the Amazon, the the... The issue there was I, I'd made this commitment without knowing what I was getting into. Like I knew the Amazon River based on because I, I'd watch a lot of National Geographic, but yeah. they show you the pretty parts of the Amazon. They don't show, they don't explain the the magnitude of how big that area is, how long the river is. And no one was really warning you against it before you decided to head off beside your mother. Mm, well, so. Th- when we went, when we did that cycle through Africa, when we left, it was the Arab uprising. You remember when the it's like all the the um, Gaddafi was about to be killed, uh, but the the Arab uprising was that big uprising that took place on Facebook, where pretty much all the citizens of a lot of the northern African countries got together and started to go against their uh, their governments. And at that place, at that time, they had Hosni Mubarak, which was their president. He literally, like two weeks before, was kicked out. And then there was, um, the American embassy was flying American tourists out of Egypt. So we were going at this time where 
uh, tourists were being taken out of Egypt. So we thought we were stepping into like a potential war zone. And when we got to Egypt, it wasn't that bad. It was actually quite inspiring because you can imagine like a almost a country ruled by a dictatorship were now free. They didn't have a government. Um, there was no real uh, structure for their uh, uh, politics. But all the people were united. And they were just happy to see foreigners because they thought we were there coming to celebrate with them. So the when we left South Africa, we were told you're stepping in, you're going to a very dangerous place. And then what followed quickly after that was North or well, Sudan had a secession where they split into North and South and they were having conflict on the border of the North and South Sudan. So the Northern Africa at that time was in a, a very dangerous, well, what we were told was a very dangerous, very volatile place. And when we got there, it was the complete opposite. So then I started to culture this belief that people are telling us about violence and problems and everything outside of South Africa, and it's not coming true. You know, maybe this is just the perceptions that people push on you. Um, and the irony is that throughout that Africa trip, everyone is saying that they are petrified of South Africa. All they can associate to South Africa is Nelson Mandela and gangsterism. And if you think of what messages go from South Africa out to the rest of Africa, the biggest one is xenophobia. Yeah. So they were, so we, the irony was when we left South Africa, all our relatives, all our friends, everyone is saying, you're crazy, it's dangerous, you're going to be killed or something like that. When we got there, it wasn't like that. So then with the Amazon, this is why I started to think when I was in Sudan that these adventures aren't as bad as people say they are. Every time people say there's danger, very, very seldom is there danger. And the irony is South Africa is one of the most violent places in the world. So then I just started to think, well, maybe people are just going to say all these adventures are crazy and dangerous because they don't know what they're talking about. Yeah. So when I went to the Amazon, people were also saying it's dangerous. Um, bad stuff happens there but by this time i'd been used to it i'd been told this pretty much through every country we went through on that africa trip so i was used to that and i just block it out i just be like this is just the opinions of people who don't know what okay. is out there that's interesting so now you arrive in the amazon with all your stuff what's the source like so the source of the amazon so the whole again with the whole adventure in the amazon to make it credible you can't just say i'm visiting the amazon because lots of people visit the Amazon. Yeah. So you had to kind of structure it to a point where it sounded enticing. So I thought, well, how many people have navigated the entire river from the beginning to the end, from the source to the sea? And I found out there was only, at that time, there was five people who had done that, documented. And of those five, I think there's only one person who had done it as a solo adventure without any support. The other guys who'd done it, they had like boat crews with them Come on. so it was far more structured so and and had i achieved that i would have been the youngest person ever to do it so i thought well there's a world's first year which then makes it more captivating um but getting to the the amazon you don't you, you think it's all jungle and water and it's not like that when you're doing the source essentially you have to find like the geographical source which is where does the first drop of water start 
or begin that eventually forms the Amazon River. And at that time, it's actually changed since I've been there. It's now been put even further away from where I was. But at that time, the source was known to be um, this mountain called Mount Mizmi, which um, it was believed that the glacial meltwater of this peak and this this peak was it's about the same size as Kilimanjaro. I think it's like four thousand six hundred meters above uh, sea level. So the meltwater that drips off there is the furthest trace of water that eventually uh, becomes what we know as the Amazon River. Yeah. So in order to say that I summited, or in order to say that I actually reached the source, I technically had to summit that mountain. So when you summit the mountain, it's just a mountain and like an ice cap that's it yeah there's no river there's not even a stream um so canoeing down it wouldn't exactly no, be no, a best no. option <laughs> but again this again like so when i when i when i first conceived of doing the amazon adventure i thought yeah i'm gonna paddle because i thought it's a river i didn't realize that the source like the first thousand k's is a tiny stream or it's a trickle of water so then i figured that's okay well uh, if i can't paddle the whole river I can't carry a kayak for a thousand Ks. So then I thought, okay, well, I'm not going to carry a kayak up to the top of a mountain with me the whole time. So I thought, okay, well, let me break it up into different stages. And then also what I started to find out is that within those thousand kilometers from the source, it's some of the worst uh, white water, like rapids in the world. And I had no experience like uh, <laughs> kayaking or anything. I'd like, I think all I'd done prior to that is, you know, like, at school you do these um uh like adventure camps where yeah. you go for three days with your classmates and you go and paddle a little river that's all i'd done so then i thought okay well i'm not very good at paddling uh what i know i can do is i can cycle and i can hike so i thought okay for the beginning phase from the source to when it actually starts to form enough river that i can paddle i'll do a combination of hiking and cycling um, so I did that for the first, I think about eight, 800 Ks. And then eventually you start to get closer to the river. And when I get, you get closer to the river, it was like, you know, maybe uh, like a stream that's between five and 10 meters wide. So it's nothing what you think of the Amazon. It's still flowing through all these gorges. And I, when I got to that, my plan was to carry on cycling to get to another point, which was this, um, this city called, I think, uh, I can't remember now, it was quite a while ago, but it was a small city that when I get there, that's where you should officially start paddling because the river is safe, you miss all the rapids. But I don't know what it was at that, like that 800k mark, I looked at the water and I was like, this doesn't look that dangerous. Let me just decide to paddle this. <laughs> so then I, I took a bus to the uh, capital Peru I then had uh, my foldable kayak that came from ca Canada that was FedEx to me I took that I took a bus back to where I'd stopped cycling yeah got in the river um, and literally within 20 minutes I was in these huge rapids I got thrown out of the kayak I almost lost I went because I went I crashed into a boulder and these foldable kayaks are very fragile and the whole kayak bent and then it sucked me under and again i was pretty naive i didn't have a life jacket on i had nothing all i had is i tied my um 
paddle to the boat with a piece of rope so that if I did ever fall out, I just hold on that to keep me, <laughs> to prevent me from being pulled down into like the eddies. Um, so th- literally within 30 minutes of paddling, like I'd obviously miscalculated the river because it looked calm, but you, you know, you can look at a river and you can see it looks flat at the surface, but what's going on underneath is really where the danger is. And after that, that I think about 30 Ks, I thought, now what? I can't paddle because I then spoke to a fisherman and he said it gets even worse downriver. So then I thought, okay, I'm pretty screwed now because I can't paddle. I can't hike because it flows through a big gorge. So you can't, you'd have to climb maybe uh, 2,000 meters and then hike along the very treacherous terrain with a 40 kg kayak. It was just impossible. So then I thought, okay, next step is maybe swim down the river because i because i grew up surfing i felt like i was a a confident swimmer but the things that bothered me then was again you don't know what's happening underneath the water and it's swimming for like i i expect i had about another 200 k's of rapids um so swimming wasn't an option then i thought okay the next best thing is get a, a a car tire you know, like a tube. So I, yeah. I went to one of these like uh, warehouses and they had a truck yeah. inflatable tube. So I, I said, okay, I'm going to float down the river with this. So I got and one of the... what's your kayak going to do? I left, so I was going to leave the kayak at this like um, little community where I, where I found the tube. And then, so the plan was take a kayak all the way down through the rapids then try catch a boat back up river to get your kayak. Then take your go with that boat uh, just on so the you kayak. Just so you did that distance exactly because yeah. uh, credibility is a huge thing. You know, yeah. you can do six thousand k's, but if you walk or you catch a bus for a hundred k's, everyone will just focus on the hundred k's that you didn't do. So I yeah. thought I needed to do every single centimeter under some form of human power. Yeah. So I, 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 I again, <laughs> you got your car tire. <laughs> I got my car tire, and then what I did is I, I, I knew how how rough it would be. So I then put a tent, and I knew it would probably take a day or two to get down. So I put a tent in the back. I took some oranges and bananas. I put them in my backpack, and then I took um, rope and I tied rope around the tube to kind of anchor myself in, and then I just Flawless left like, well, yeah. yeah. <laughs> when I look back at it now, I'm like. Sometimes naivety helps you because yeah. if I if I went to it now where I'm a lot more um, critical with my assessment of things, I would have said this is suicide. Why? This is stupid. Don't do this. Um, uh, and so when I left on the tube, it took I did I did about I think it was eighty to a hundred k's on a tube. So if you think how long that is on a river to just be sitting on a tube and paddling, you know, just swimming with your arms. Yeah, I know you're saying you're concerned about the currents going underwater, but can we talk about the other animals and things so that, that are also underwater that you should be taking into consideration? So a lot of the, the um, I think the fear of the Amazon is, it's false fear. So people think of piranhas. Piranhas are not a real threat, but uh, that being said, when I was shot, there was a lot of blood. The guy, one guy said, if that happens in a calm part of the river, you can almost be expected that you'll be 
attacked by piranhas. But I'll get to that later. So I knew in the part of the, the river I was, you don't have to worry about piranhas. They're yeah. not a real threat. Silly question. There's no crocs or alligators. They do. They have they have caiman, but it's t- it's small alligators. Okay. Nothing like Nile crocodiles. So it's like a chunk of the calf. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But it, I also know the reality is that like uh, our fear of animals, it's also it's a false fear. Animals are not out there looking to get you. And I, I know that the only real dangerous thing in the Amazon is your. It's not. It's like your micro uh, fauna. Right, so like in Africa, we are scared of hippos, um, elephants, rhino, lion, leopard, hyena. Right, all the megafauna. Yeah. In the Amazon, the only like real big threatening animal they have would be the jaguar, but it's so rare and elusive that you'll never really see it. But the problem in the Amazon is your small stuff. So your spiders. So like if you think of the most dangerous and poisonous ants, spiders, insects, uh, some reptiles all come from the Amazon. So the one I was always aware of and nervous about is the bullet ant. Yeah. That's got the most powerful sting in the insect kingdom. Is it a bat? Is it, is it it's a bat, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, I think it's either a bat or it's a sting. I can't remember. Yeah. But I, it's called a bullet ant. <clears throat> So how do you be aware of things like that? Because I know what it looks like. It's quite a big ant. Oh, okay. Yeah. So you see, it's a um, it's a big ant, right? Hairy. <clears throat> and the thing is, they uh, if you get bitten by enough of them, you can potentially go into paralysis. And the thing is, even though it's a big ant, often when I'd set up camp, you don't know that you're setting up on like a, 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 an okay. ant hole because they they have these huge um, networks under the ground and they just come up everywhere so a lot of the time i, I would find ants um all a, a, around my tent yeah but fortunately never bullet ant but so, so you the, never saw one during your uh, no i think okay. i saw one because i think they are quite i saw one very big ant but i, I again I'm, I'm not no entomologist so i, I struggle to yeah. distinguish i was just worried about any ant that looked big and black mm-hmm. um so that I was worried about. There's another thing. Um, they have the Goliath bird-eating spider. So it's the biggest spider on Earth. I think that I've I've Googled some. There's some. This one a bird. So. <laughs> yeah, they see that one with the hand. It's a huge spider. So it's. A, oh. I think it's part of the tarantula family. Bro, you can put that thing on a leash. I know. It's like a. It's like a. I always say it's like a Jack Russell. <laughs> Except if it bites you. Uh, yeah. But it, it's, you or? won't, it, no, I think it's venomous, but you won't die from it. But it would obviously be a, a big issue if it did bite you, right? But that to me was more the freaky factor of like, imagine uh, you found that in your tent or in your kayak. Like, yeah. even if it's not as dangerous as you, as like, it's going to, you know, it's mm. not fatal. You'll still shit yourself. Um. So there was that, and then there was. There's obviously also like um, everyone's heard of the the uh, the poison arrow dart frogs. Yeah, they are highly highly toxic, but pretty pretty harmless unless you go up and like. How's uh, those colors? I know. Did I you always, ever see one? No, no. I wish I did. They so they so uh, they so beautiful. It's like a, an art piece. If you touch it, are you fine? 
so the from what i gather is like a lot of the tribes they actually if they if you stress the frog out they secrete a toxin mm -hmm. then they actually put their their arrow tips on there yeah and then they use that for hunting and if if it penetrates your blood system it's like it takes you out almost instantaneously so it's it's what it's like a set of paralysis yeah well i don't know what type of toxin where it affects you but I'm, i've seen them hunting monkeys with it and as soon as so if you think of a dart hits a monkey the monkey will try to pull it out or try to fight mm. when they hit with a poison arrow they just drop from the tree yeah so but obviously the the toxin also is it, it how toxins affect you is also based on your size yeah right uh so that was something again it's just it's just like to remind you of the small things there and then there was another thing which the woolly fish the woolly fish yeah <laughs> it's called the kandiru so you're, that you're about to type in woolly fish weren't oh, you okay. <laughs> <laughs> i'm sure if you type woolly fish it would actually come up Yeah, there it is. It's Candido. So it's like, a, I think it's part of the catfish family. Oh, it's actually called the willy fish. Um, so the, I think it's more like uh, legend than reality because a lot of the guys, even in the Amazon, would tell me about this fish, but I never met someone who had actually experienced what the fish is known for. Um, uh. So people would say say to me, uh, just don't swim naked in the river. Watch out because this fish swims up your your urethra, your your willy yeah. hole, and it gets stuck there. And then you have to surgically remove it. And I think whenever you have a a story that involves something swimming up your willy, it's going to become sensationalized. Yeah. <laughs> but even the Amazon, the guy, the local guys were would talk to me about it. They would say, "Oh yeah, just don't swim naked." I don't know if they were just perpetuating, like the myth, or if they maybe knew of someone who's or of someone who actually had had a fish swim up his willy. Okay. Um. So so, so now you cruising down. So, Up but to your neck. a lot of so a lot of these th those small things, I uh, I was very conscious of them. So I'd always inspect my tent for um, bullet ants, and I would never swim without clothes on. So I'd I'd wear like underpants or something. Okay. Um, so yeah, so I was uh, so where where we were back when I was on the tube, right? Yeah. So then not a tube, a tire. The tire, yeah. <laughs> Don't glamorize is your, it. Is your butt just dangling? Yeah, so you know, so you go two ways. <laughs> you you put the screen go. <laughs> so so many. <laughs> I would I would be floating, right? And the, the jungle is so dense in some places that you can't see any civilization. Yeah. So I'd be floating and then all of a sudden you hear people just like they would, they would whoop. They'd go like, whoo, whoo. And they would start communicating to each other because they're obviously communities to let them know that I'm there. Then they would come out and just stare at me. Um, uh, or friendly or wary? I don't know. I, I think like what you're saying, like imagine just seeing this, this, this white guy floating down a, the river on a tire tube like he's on holiday yeah <laughs> it's a very very foreign thing for them to see and a lot of these guys that have don't they, they just don't see white people to be honest they don't see foreigners so i think uh, a lot of the time it was more um maybe curiosity 
I had one, I remember one night when I, because I'd also, I'd be camping on the riverbank. So I set up camp one night and um, I woke up in the morning and there was these two guys just like literally two meters away, just like hidden in the bush or hidden in the jungle, but enough for me to see them. And they were just sat there and they were just staring at me and I got a fright. And then in those moments when you see someone like that, I always go try to be friendly. So I'd walk up, I'd say hello and they just stared at me. And they just watched me for two hours, setting up camp, just like, like imagine so no, if I was no a TV screen, or... nothing, nothing. Um, just very curious, I, I suppose. Is, is it a different form of Spanish that they speak? On yeah, that yeah. So they have, I think it's called Quechuan or something like okay. that. Then they have their own dialects within the yeah. different communities. But even then, my Spanish wasn't that good. But you can communicate to lots of people through just your body language like mm. you know if you go smile and you're non-threatening often they'll warm up to you so a lot of like that there was another time where the same thing happened there were these it was one guy he had obviously knew i was there because he walked through the jungle and he came and he came to meet me in the morning just to want to see the kayak and want to see all my equipment maybe he was touching my skin i don't know why yeah. But he was just, you know, like my legs, to feel my legs. And it was quite weird. Yeah. But I think it was because I was in a very remote parts of the Amazon that yeah. uh, they don't see foreigners. And, you know, you hear about stories like um, in Africa, like a blonde lady. Often some uh, communities want to touch blonde hair because they've never seen it. They can't understand it. So I suppose it was the same thing for some of these guys. There, that curiosity is either they want to touch or they just want to observe. They don't want to interact. They just want to observe. Um, but a lot of the times, like for the I'd say like the first two weeks in the jungle, um, it's very difficult to comprehend how to adjust to that lifestyle because there's a lot of noise coming from all the creatures, like the giant cicadas, the birds, which is beautiful. But then often what happens is it'll be, it will just go dead silent. And when things go silent, then you often have to think, why is what's making these things go silent? And either it could be like a predator, but most of the time I think it's a person walking through the jungle. And then my, my I'd be quite wary. And I remember... Um, Sorry, so they'd go silence when things were around them instead of making yeah, a massive so if you, noise. If you think like, like a cricket in your house, when you walk close to a cricket, it goes quiet because it can sense the vibration, I think, with crickets. But in the jungle, um, whilst every like the cicadas are communicating um, uh, and the birds, they'll go quiet because you, they give away their position, especially if they know that these the people, they, they associate a lot of the people as hunters. So they know that they're, they're okay. a, a threat. Yeah. Um, so when the jungle go quiet at like in the middle of the night, it would, it would just stop. It would go for like five minutes. It just go dead quiet. And then I'd, I'd, in the beginning, I didn't know what, but then I started to realize it's because someone's there. And then you start to adjust through these periods. And then eventually what I started to do is, um, uh, I wouldn't sleep with the pillow. So I used to wrap up clothes as a pillow. So I'd put my head on the ground. And then you can actually, if you walk through sand, if you can hear feet coming close to you. And one night, um, I, I caught a guy like that. But there was no threat. They would often just come and just look at you and then disappear back into the jungle. 
but again when some random guy walks out in like just a pair of shorts and he's got a machete you automatically start to think okay well if this guy is threatening i'm pretty screwed because all i've got is a a, a kayak and a tent to protect me yeah so then you start to try become more adjusted to the environment to the point where you understand your surroundings so you understand when people are coming close to you or if you're getting into someone else's territory so often what would happen is i'd pull up to the if i was going to camp I'd start looking for a camp at like four o'clock because sundown would be at six, but it takes a long time to find the right camp because you don't want to camp on someone's territory because you just, the the risk of hostility escalates. Did so you make that mistake at all? I made, well, I'd made it prior because I would just wake up and there'd be guys by my tent, not all the time, but like on three or four occasions, I'd wake up and there'd be people there and they were, they knew I was there. I don't know. They were there. And that's it. You don't want to be caught like that. You want to know that if there is someone there, um, they either know that you're camping on their territory because it's very difficult to understand how they think. They might perceive you as an immediate threat because you're different or because you may be trespassing. Um, so you, you want to, I wanted to get to a point where you, through traveling down the river, you're as inconspicuous as possible. So almost like no one ever sees you, no one hears you, no one knows you're there in terms of the locals yes um and often what i would do is i'd I'd pull up to set up camp and then as i said someone would it it would there would be someone in the jungle that would come and either walk past the tent and again you you think about in the middle of the night if someone walks past your tent it's very scary because you don't know what they're going to do and you it's just a very foreign experience yeah um and then so what would happen is i'd often like pull up to a a, a, a side of the riverbank and then i would see they had like pegs in the ground and i would think it was branches but then what i found is they actually set fishing traps and then when i realized wherever there's fishing traps there must be someone close so I don't camp anywhere near here so i'd go and find places that are like um hidden in like nooks and crannies of the jungle where it didn't look like there was anyone any anywhere close yeah um and besides this now how's the actual paddling going for you because this is a how long is this trip supposed to take you two months no no it was supposed to take between four and six months so i i projected i could be traveling cycling 100 k's a day minimum which i didn't get anywhere near that because you mean paddling no cycling because you know i broke it into hiking cycling paddling yes so when i started i thought so those thousand k's I should be able to do in twelve days with two rest days at a hundred k's per day, but cycling at like um, sea level is very different to cycling at three or four thousand meters above sea level. Yeah. So I thought, based on the experience, the Africa trip, I could do a hundred k's per day easy. When I got to Peru, because you're cycling, when you're following the the source of the river, you are. Um, uh, cycling through mountain ranges you're cycling through the peruvian andes you're cycling at a minimum of 2000 meters above sea level and obviously the higher you go if you it really just uh kills your endurance so thinking i could do 100 i was actually doing about 30 40 k's a day sure. all i could do i just was the um uh the fatigue was too much um so I projected before I went, I thought I could do it in four months. When I got there, I realized it's probably going to take six months. So those, what should have been 10 days cycling took about 20 days. 
then um, when I got paddling, I thought, well, the river flows at about four to five knots, which is like four to five Ks an hour. Yeah. So even if I don't paddle, I should be able to, let for a full day, I should be able to do close on 60 Ks, full 12 hours at like 55 knots. But then the thing is the river flows not in a straight line, it bends. And every time it bends, it then causes like a, a, a an opposing current so it then starts to push you back up. So you get sucked in like this. Not it's not strong. Yeah. But it's to the point where I thought I could do sixty Ks a day. And then if I paddle I could probably do a hundred Ks a day. I then found out I, I could only do about thirty to forty Ks a day. So what was supposed to take four months in cycling and kayaking took um uh, well it was supposed to take six months. And the paddling was um yeah, I, I remember I injured my shoulder just from overworking it because I also I didn't train. Like to me, I, I always stepped into these things and I used naive, naivety to my advantage because I always felt like if I knew the challenge, I probably wouldn't do it. Yeah. If I knew how tough it was going to be doing that cycling, doing the hiking, living in the jungle, um, being alone for long stretches, paddling this far every day, all day, Base, and then you're paddling when you get little to no sleep and you're not eating enough. So you're deficient in calories, you're deficient in sleep. And then it's flipping hot during the day. So you're getting hot all the time. And I was too scared to swim in the river. So I just sweat in the boat. So when I went into this, I did no training. No paddling, no nothing. I didn't even know what my kayak looked like. It took me like two hours to figure out how to build this kayak. And the first time I got onto it, I tipped because I didn't know how to stay stable in a kayak. Um, but again, I, I, I always used naivety to my advantage because yeah. it could allow me to bite off more than I could chew. Um, the paddling at that time, like after three weeks of paddling, when you're literally paddling 60 k's a day minimum, um, it, it starts to, it just, it, it, it like compounds. You st it starts, when you get p fatigued physically, your mind starts to play tricks on you. And I, there was lots of times where I didn't ever like, cry to myself, but I, I would say to myself, like, I just want to go home. And then as soon as I'd say that, I'd say, don't say that. Don't say that. Just say you want to have an easier day because I didn't want to. Because you can't just get up and leave. No, I couldn't. And the thing is also, as soon as you, as soon as you like, um, as soon as you allow your mind to put you into a place that you don't want to go, your mind will capitalize on that if you don't have control. So if I start to think, you know, just this is tough. I want to go home. I then start to think of ways how to get home. And then you start to think of sabotaging yourself. So I'd always try to catch myself like that. But it's, it was very difficult because when you're physically fatigued and mentally fatigued, I don't know why, it seems like it's just our disposition. We just go into the most negative aspects of our life. Um, but yeah, the, the, the paddling was, uh, it was becoming very hectic. Yeah. Cool. And then... Day 52 or was it 56? I think it was, yeah, it was two months in. That's when everything changed. So uh, even though the paddling was becoming quite difficult, you get used to it. You yeah. do start to adjust. You start to adjust to life in the jungle. You start to adjust on having like feeling hunger all the time. Sorry, I'm going to cut you off for a quick second. I wanted to ask you, in your two months of paddling down, did you, get, did you see any 
real life examples of the deforestation going on in the Amazon? Or oh, yeah, was yeah. none of that It's crazy. So I'd be in the middle of nowhere and then you see these, you know, these twin rotor helicopters, they're big helicopters that fly like industrial equipment. Yeah, yeah. So you're in the middle of nowhere and then I just hear this helicopter going, flying this huge, um, what I found is like oil refinery equipment. And you're like, there's no one here. What are they like? If these guys, if you got these helicopters flying here, imagine what they're building here. So that's obviously from the uh, the impact from like the commercial multinational oil companies, right? So they are in there and they've been in there for a long time and they're ravaging the place. But it's not just them. So obviously their impact is far bigger because they've got um, the means to really ramp up their uh, destruction. Um, but the locals also. So like I said to you, like all the animals associate the humans there as hunters. So they they all are aware of the the and what's made the 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 locals even more ruthless is now they have guns. You know, if you're hunting with a bow and arrow, your likelihood of actually taking something decreases by like five hundred percent. It's very difficult to kill something with a bow and arrow. You now give them guns, they'll just shoot everything, and that's what they do do. They fish everything, they shoot everything. So what would happen is when You'd go into these communities, you'd find it'd be like a dead zone. There'd be no life around there. There'd be no birds, there'd be nothing. Because they're all trying to get away from humans. And then now, with the, um, obviously because a lot of them have hunted out most of their, what they were eating, they are now starting to do trading amongst each other. And now they're starting to go into deeper parts of the jungle to take more. So... You would see a lot of like the human animal impact, how they were literally just killing everything. Um, birds, fish, you name it. Uh, then the deforestation. So a lot of what they, they now do is in small parts I saw, and remember I only saw a fraction of the Amazon. I'd hate to know what's going on in the greater greater parts. Um, they do slash and burn. So it's like what they do in agriculture. If you're going to plant anything now, you go and take the indigenous forest and you cut it down and you burn it so i'd be paddling and you just see these huge fires just going on in the jungle everywhere and you see all the smoke clouds and it's them obviously doing slash and burn so they clear the forest and they plant a non-indigenous species that they want to grow like corn or i saw papaya um chocolate cacao um and then the other thing was the when with the big trees like the mahogany, yeah, they cut those down, and then they try. So when you when you'd be paddling, you'd see they call them timber rafts. So they get, sure, I saw timber rafts like some the size of like twenty meters by twenty meters, others the size of like a, fifth, uh, a football on. field Check pitch. That out for me, please. A timber raft. So it's it's just if you imagine all the trees they cut down to transport it through the jungle, the easiest way is to go back to the river. But now you can't get these big like uh, ferries to transport. Yeah. And it's expensive. So what they do is they make these rafts. Yeah, you can see they're huge. They just cable like literally. Yeah, that's a small one compared to to some of the ones I saw. And then you see, so if you look at there, what they do is they then attach motors on each corner so it gives it a bit of directional stability okay that whole timber off and then they build huts on there and they live on there with their family and then they float down river to where they get to the bigger port and then they take the wood obviously wow. dry it and it's harvested okay 
Um, and that's happening all the time. So it, it's like, you, you, you know, a lot of the time you think that the destruction is coming from these big multinational corporations, which it is, but it doesn't mean that the locals aren't contributing too. And the thing is, you might have like three multinational corporations doing a hell of a lot of damage, but then you've got every community that is now hunting and killing out everything, all moving towards agriculture. Um, so, you know, I, I saw lots of it. And, and I remember sitting there when I, and I was just thinking like, if I'm seeing this and I'm only starting to collectively understand this from me being here, mm. how the hell is anyone else outside going to understand this? Yeah. Like how how do you explain the magnitude of first of all how big the Amazon is, and then secondly how much destruction is happening? It's it's very difficult, and I I still never found, I've never been able to fully articulate or explain how how much it's being destroyed, and even the 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 magnitude and the severity it's difficult because a lot of the time what you hear from the outside like your organizations your all they want to do is blame the multinational corporations. They don't want to blame the local indigenous people because that would seem like um, a racist or so they they kind of shy away from that and they justify what the locals do because the locals live there, but then they crucify the multinationals. And in my opinion, you should be crucifying both of them because they are both contributing to the same problem, just in different scales. But if you took out all the multinational corporations, the locals will start to destroy a huge portion of it. And it's already happening. And this is probably going to be the silliest question of the podcast. But did you find that the oxygen was like a lot stronger there because of the fact that you're surrounded by mm, not stronger of kilometers of trees? Or? Not stronger, but it's definitely cleaner. Okay. Yeah, you, you definitely... It's But it's the same like... If you go to the bush, like you go to Kruger, maybe not the Kruger Park, but if you go to like Botswana, you go some remote places, you can feel that the air is cleaner. But again, I don't know if it's perception because you think that it should be cleaner. So it's like a placebo effect. Yeah. But you do feel it like, well, you think you feel it. So I I would, when in the jungle, I'd feel like my sinuses are clear. I'd feel like I could breathe easier. But again, it, it might just be placebo. I don't know. Okay. Yeah. Cool. So yeah, back to what we were saying about two months and you having the time of your life. Yeah. Well, time, <laughs> time of my life, maybe. Uh, I think there were good moments, but then there were also not, so, not such yeah. fun moments. But again, it, it's where I wanted to be. It's what I wanted to be doing. Um, but then, yeah, and, uh, two months in, that's when everything uh, uh, took a turn for the worst. So I would say like after two months in the jungle, you start to feel more at home, more acclimatized. And I, and then I started to actually feel like, you know what? I, Cause prior to that, I would have doubts whether I could actually do this. Cause I, I didn't realize how difficult it was. But then after two months, I was like, you know what? I think you're going to be able to do this. As long as there's no major upset, your body will get you through there. Um, so it started to seem more feasible that I'd actually accomplish this and then have that goal of being the youngest person ever to navigate the entire Amazon River. And then I would start to think, well, if you can do this, maybe we do the Nile next, maybe do the Congo River next. 
So you start to set up all these things when you become optimistic. And I was feeling quite optimistic two months in. But then uh, I always say it's like uh, it's, uh, uh, Murphy. Murphy's Law. Yeah. yeah. Whenever you feel good about things or you think that there is a, an optimistic future, <laughs> Murphy comes knocking. And then um, so two months in, it was like, I think it's just after lunch. I was paddling and I'd seen, now I'd bear in mind, I'd seen locals throughout this trip, as I said, and none of them were ever threatening. In the beginning, you perceive it's threatening because it's foreign, but um, it was never threatening. Even yeah. though they all had machetes, I saw one or two guys with guns. Never did I ever feel like I was a problem and never did I experience hostility. So I saw two two guys that were on their, their what they call a peke peke. It's just like a motorized uh, boat that's made out of... It was like super narrow ones. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like a toothpick with a motor, right? Um, so I saw these two guys come past me and, uh, I would always wave to the locals. Sometimes I'd wave back. Sometimes they wouldn't. Um, but these guys just seemed like just young guys. I knew they were young. They're probably like between 18 and 24, but yeah, I didn't think much of it. They saw me, they just went and you, you never think the worst is going to happen. So I, I carried on paddling, um, and then as I started to get a, like, because the the river snakes, you can never see more than like, maybe I'd say at the part that I was maybe five Ks ahead because it then just gets obstructed by the jungle. So I was going around this big bend. And then what happens is when you go around, what I would decide to do is go, when you go around a bend, you don't stay in the middle of the river. You try to get to the the side because then you don't have to get stuck in like the backwash of the the current that yes. wraps around. So I would stick. To, I stuck to the left. So every time, that if, so if you can imagine, if there was a a bend left, you'd stay on the left hand riverbank. Then if you knew it was going to bend right, you'd go over to the right hand riverbank. Um, so I was on the left, I was bending left, and then as I came around, well, you come around pretty slowly, but as I started emerging around, um, I felt this impact in my back and initially i thought it was because i there was this bird that had been flying like i'd been watching it for maybe uh, three k's it would just fly and then land at the riverbank and then it would watch me and then it would fly ahead of me okay and it was very cool and it was probably just interested in me because i'd never seen what maybe a red kayak or uh, um, uh, a human that looked like me in this part of the jungle. So it was quite a curious bird. So, um, and again, it was beyond, it was like, I, I, it would fly and it would land on like an overhanging branch. And then I'd paddle right under it and it, and it would watch me go. Like just, it would, so I knew it was tracking me just as I was watching it. And I remember filming it and I could get pretty close to it, like within five or six meters. Um, so then eventually when I, that impact hit me, I thought, Maybe it's this bird because this bird was acting weird before. I'd never known like a, a bird of prey to follow yeah. someone and actually watch someone. So uh, when I felt that impact, I thought this bird had just gone crazy. Maybe it had thought like there was a prey on the kayak. Maybe it saw color and it came into um, like dive bomb it, but then realized it wasn't and actually just crashed into me. So just felt like a force hitting your back. Major force. Yeah. 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 Still 
paddle in hand. No, so when it that it did it like the imp, I shot up, I it like it wins you. So, I don't know if you when you winded you like straighten out. Yeah. So I straighten my arms out and then uh, I lost balance in the kayak because you know you keep your balance in a kayak with your torso, so you move your hips. Mm. When that freezes like that, wherever your center of gravity is, you just tip with the kayak. So I froze like that. I couldn't keep my balance and I just fell out the kayak. Um, and as I fell out, again, it, hap- it happens and it feels like split seconds. It's like one moment you're paddling, the next moment you're in the water, not knowing how or why you're in the water. Um, and then when I, I was in the water, I only realized I was in the water when I was, I was like two meters below because it happens so quickly. You don't even know you're in the water. And so, is your mind going at this point? Uh, or you still can't really comprehend no, what's actually... You're, so I'd say like maybe you're con- you're, you're, the thinking part of your mind is not there because you just get adrenaline just takes over. Yeah. And you go into this, this like state where you can't comprehend so you can't comprehend what's happening in the moment you're kind of just reacting yeah so that's why i didn't even know i was in the water till i swallowed water and then i thought okay and then then you kind of wake up because you know it's like you start to mimic feel like you're gonna drown so then i started to say okay swim and then because of that impact to my back i was in like a partial paralysis from the waist up so i couldn't move i couldn't swim and i was saying to my arms it's weird, but you're like arms swim and they weren't doing anything. And I just kept on sinking. And then I started to like, you can feel my toes. I could feel my legs working. And because I played water polo, I know how to tread water. So I tread water, got to the surface, treading water with my legs, still frozen, like the top half of my body. And you also like, I was grunting because the impact, it, you know, when you winded, you're like, ah, ah. Yeah. I was doing that and I, when you do that, it also like it freaks you out because you can't control your breathing. So, the, and then I thought like, okay, like then my thinking mind started to come back into the equation. I'm like, hey, what's going on? And that's when I thought maybe this was the bird. So I started looking for the bird because then I could at least understand what happened. And then while I was looking for that bird, second uh, impact hit me on the left left hand side of like my head and my shoulder. And again, it was like severe. And I knew it wasn't the bird, but then I thought maybe there, because I'd, uh, prior to this, I'd, uh, a river dolphin had breached the bottom of my kayak. So I thought maybe it's a river dolphin attacking me and like coming in and like, you know, like how when a shark breaches those seals, yeah. maybe a dolphin's coming in and it's like hitting me and then going underwater. Because I, I, you, you can't understand what's causing the sensation. Um, and then I, then I started to panic. I'm like, get to the river. And fortunately, I, or the riverbank, and fortunately, I was close to the riverbank. I, uh, I kicked towards the kayak. I then like anchored myself with my arm on the kayak and I treaded water. And then I, I walked to the shallows like knee deep. And then I sat down and then like, I started to think, okay, what, you know, you start to try piece together what is going on. And then, um, I think it was the third shot that hit me on the right side. And then I thought, okay, this is, I thought, okay, like you've, you've been shot because I, so about the third one, that's when only the third one. I thought that, okay, you've been shot. I don't know who or what or how. And you didn't know how far these guys were. From didn't know how far or anything. Um, what did they shoot you with? Cause that guy's think, okay, he got shot in the back. 
and each side of the face surely you should be in several so pieces. they have these like very primitive shotguns it's like a and that what they if you if you think of a shotgun cartridge you get different i don't know if it's called rounds you get buckshot birdshot so what these guys do is they get a cartridge and they just put any metal in there like scrap metal anything and uh um so I, i've still got some of the shots uh, i know some of the shots were buckshot size so like the buckshot's like um i don't know maybe three by three mil but also three mil diameter of the yeah. ball but then they also put in like bits of steel whatever can fit in that cartridge um so but again when you get shot whether you get shot with a shotgun or a pistol it's very difficult to know what you've been shot by mm. or rifle i was just glad i wasn't i wasn't dead but um like in hindsight you know if i was shot with a you, you don't take a shot to the head with a rifle or like a hollow point and live to tell that story so fortunately i was lucky that the gun they were using was pretty useless in terms of killing me but there was another guy that i read about because now now all these whenever someone gets shot in the amazon especially if it's a foreigner somehow the news people send these links to me literally i think uh two years after this amazon trip another woman tried to do the same thing she was shot and killed dead around the same section same same section um so obviously the guns they have can't kill and the, the guns i had they did it did puncture my heart punctured my lung punctured my carotid artery um a lot of them are they left they still in, internally inside me um so wait so after shot three now you realize you've been shot do you get up and run no so me? then you're going to i went into like this defeatist mindset where i was like well okay if, if, if you again you're not thinking logically but and you're not really assessing the situation you're just thinking the worst you're like okay i've been shot um and I, because one of the shots had punctured my carotid artery there was so much blood in the water and when you see your blood t- change the color of water it free it really freaked me out and then i just thought you're gonna die here and then when i told myself that that's the reality i thought don't fight it just enjoy it sit back and you know just ride the lightning still no one inside no one inside i had no idea I, it took a while to even figure out what was going on because you, you have to just remember in those situations you you're not really comprehending what you're going through there's no logical like application of your mind to assess your situation especially when adrenaline's in the mix so when i i, I told myself this is this is it this is where you die like don't fight it and also i couldn't really move i was like still in like that partial paralysis i couldn't even get up and every time i, I like tensed my back it would hurt so i thought there was gaping holes inside of me so i just like yeah i remember you saying that you then just got like a rush of endorphins into you yeah so when i then accepted yeah when i when i accepted like this was the end and i lay back and i just kind of close my eyes and you close your eyes and you open your eyes and you kind of wait for what happens um uh i then started to feel an intense euphoria like yeah i've never done heroin but i i can imagine that if it it must feel like what heroin feels like like absolute peace tranquility 
Nothing that your phases life, you. Like, yeah. flash before your eyes in the cliche sense. Not, not then. Not in, that, not in that euphoric moment. No. Okay. Again, for your, for, to start comprehending time, a different part of your mind has to work. When you hit with euphoria, it's really, even adrenaline, it's really just a chemical reaction that just takes over everything. Mm. It's a ha. You know, it's like if you, any drug, when, if, you take a, a really, if you take morphine, you just sit and you just bliss out. That's the whole point of the drug. You're not now starting to assess your life situation. Yeah. So I just blissed out. And when I was lying there, and the, the scary thing is like, I probably would have, even if I wasn't dying, I would have just stayed there and like wanted to die because I'd convinced myself that. And that euphoria that you go through, um, uh, you lose the, you, you, you just lose the will to live because you just feel so good in the moment. So I, I loved it and I was just laying there and I was blissing out. And then uh, I heard the, a boat coming up river. And it kind of like distracted me from that like funk I was in. And then I sat up and then I saw it was one of these two guys who had passed me. And then I started to now piece together the situation because now he's coming towards me. Now I started to like assess, okay, a threat. So he's coming towards me. Then I realized his friend must be somewhere in the jungle behind that shooting me. So he's coming towards me maybe to see if I'm dead or to steal my stuff. Or he's, has he got anything on him? At that point, no, because all I can see is dri he's driving like the okay. the motor. But then I thought he must, he probably has a machete. So before he got too close to me, I, I stood up and I begged to the guy and I said, please leave me. Like, if you want my, and I gestured, I said, like, if you want my stuff taken, I kicked my boat towards him. Um, he didn't care and he just carried him coming towards him. And then I started to think like, you know, and you can just see like a very ruthless look, sort of felt like. Like emotionless. Yeah, emotionless, but like, he could kill you and it wouldn't bat an eyelid. Like, um, n there was nothing there, but that's the scary part is when there's no reaction to you pleading. Yeah. Um, then I started to think, get out, go, just run, get away from the threat. And then as I decided to run, I turned around and I was about to take off. And then I remembered in my kayak, which my kayak was now upside down, but inside the kayak, there's a thing called an, like, um, it's like an emergency tracking device. If I push it, it sends out an SOS and it sends my GPS location. So I thought, let me push this now and then run and bolt. But as soon as I got like a step closer to the kayak, the guy fired a fourth shot that hit me in the leg. And then I'm like, I've got no, and then I, when it, when he fired that shot, you can see everything hitting the water. So he didn't really hit me, but yeah. it, or it like, I think I only got two shots in the leg, but I saw it, you see all the shots splash against the water. And if you can think from a shotgun, it takes a long time to load and reload. And also from the first time he shot me, the current's always pushing you down. So the first shot was the most, uh, well, the most potent shot. Then I was underwater. So he probably shot me with like, um, from 50 or let's say maybe. 30 meters away then the next shot was like 40 meters away then the next shot was 50 meters away then the next shot was also about 50 meters so was, he wasn't tracking me which was yeah. but he, i knew he was still trying to shoot me trying to kill me and then i just ran and then um when i got when i felt like i was far enough away from these guys because i just crashed through the jungle you zigzag through the jungle trying to lose track of these guys but they obviously didn't track me because eventually i got maybe after running 3k through the jungle 
I came back to the river and I looked up river and I couldn't see these guys. So now I was on like another bend of the river and I thought, well, they're obviously not coming down. They're probably preoccupied with my stuff. And I thought, well, now what? And then I, like after the threat was gone, that, that's when, and I think I was like completely out of adrenaline. That's when I started to have like um, flashbacks. Like I thought, this is, this is it. This is where you're going to die. And I thought about what it'll be like to rot, you know, die of blood loss and then be yeah. eaten or destroyed by the animals. Um, uh, and then I thought, imagine what will happen with um, if like my mom never finds a body or something like that. So then I started to have flashbacks and all that stuff. And then fortunately, I saw two guys from the opposite side of the river just emerge out of nowhere. But they didn't see me. I saw them. And they were getting into their fishing boats. Well, I don't know if they were taking something from it. And I tried to get their attention. And the river at this point is like... Maybe... Sorry, were you not worried about those guys now? I was initially. But okay. you know when you... when you So I hesitated first because I thought maybe these two know those two. Yeah. Or maybe these two are those two. But the, the, the distinguished... is The one guy had a thick black hair. The other guy who shot me there, his head was shaved and they're wearing different clothes. But then I thought maybe they're from the same village. Mm. So I did hesitate. But then you think when you're that desperate, like yeah. even before I saw those two guys, I what entered my mind was may, let me go back to those guys. Maybe they'll show me some mercy this time. Mm. That's how desperate you become. That I was prepared to go back to the guys who shot me to plead with them again to see if they'll give me a second chance. Because you become that desperate. And it's so difficult to think of ways out, like in the jungle, because there's there's nothing there. There's no one to help you. There's no communication. I knew I was like at least 200 k's each way from any proper uh, like built up community. So you, you this is where your mind plays tricks on you, and you start to think. Uh, so you waved across these guys, and they. So I waved to them. They didn't see me. Because you, you, the river at that point is like 800, almost a K wide. Sure. So you're like spots on the horizon. And then I tried to call them. But at that point, I didn't realize I had a punctured lung. So I couldn't build up air pressure to make a loud enough sound. So you're like... <laughs> and then I thought I couldn't make a sound because of the adrenaline. I didn't know my lung, my lung had been punctured. But it was the the worst is that you're sitting there, you see help, but you can't call them. Yeah. Can't get their attention. Then, um, fortunately, one of them saw me. And they came They came across the river, but they stopped like 50 meters away from me. And they just looked at me. They didn't do anything. But now, if you can imagine from their perspective, I had blood all over my face. This is a... Like, imagine if someone knocks on your door who's been wounded... And you live in like a remote parts of the Karoo. You're not going to, there's going to be that hesitancy where this person yes. is the threat also. So I gestured to them. I was like, listen, I've been shot. Please help me. And I just collapsed on the ground just to show I was like weak and useless. And uh, um, I was like sobbing. Then they, they came, they could only come like 10 meters more because it was too shallow. So then I had to walk, wade into the river then I just like fell into their boat. They took me across to their community. And then as we were going to the community, more community members started to come out. 
and they're very like they don't wear like loincloths and that they wear normal clothes but it's old raggedy clothes they still live in like bamboo huts made of wood and um not bamboo uh, palm leaves yeah there's no infrastructure there's no electricity nothing so they when they saw me like they they lifted me out of the boat the men and there was a woman and a child that were also on the bank now meeting meeting us as we went across and the child started screaming the mother started screaming and then i started to think she's this must be way worse than i think it is <sighs> and then when i got into the community they took me into like this little hut and they sat me down and then because we couldn't communicate they just sat me then they they formed this circle around me like a big circle and you played charades yeah <laughs> <laughs> So they're all, all around me and they're all just looking at me and talking to each other. And when I try to speak to them, they'd all ignore me. Um, and then I, I started to think, okay, my, uh, I must have some big holes in my back because it feels numb everywhere yeah. where there was a shot. So then when I took my shirt off, one of these ladies came through, this old lady, like she, she looked like 90. She came through with a bucket and water and she started to clean the wound on my back, all the wounds, just like mm -hmm. all the blood and all that stuff. And when she did that, I felt like the community kind of realized I'm not like an alien. Because then another lady came and helped. Okay. And then another person brought me sugar. They all started to now want to help me. Whereas before that, they were just like, just staring at me. Like if I died, they would have just looked. Um, so I started to feel a bit more optimistic and then... I said, like, can, I, can you help me? What can we do? And then they said, we can take you to hospital. Well, there's a hospital, but it's it's more than a day away. And they didn't have enough petrol to get me there. So then... How are you understanding this? Well, I didn't really. I'm only piecing this together. At that time, oh, okay. I didn't know what was going on. I would just say, like, yeah. por favor, por favor. Yeah. That's it. Like, please, please. Yeah. Um, so a lot of the story I can only tell at that point, I don't know what was going on. Yeah. All they did was they, after they cleaned my wounds, they put me on a bed and they wrapped me up in blankets. They put me in like this, the bed is like just a wooden stretcher almost. And they put me into their, um, their own peke peke and we headed down river. And then like four hours later, we arrived at this other community. Same, same issue. They, they, wouldn't help me because I knew it was money because they kept on saying dinero, which I know is money. And then I would just say, yo tengo nada dinero, which in yeah. my mind means I have, and I had no money, I had nothing. Yeah. But I knew money was the issue there because they kept on saying dinero, dinero. Um, and then there's when I started to feel, you feel like, um, I knew I had internal bleeding, but I don't know how severe. And because my breathing was restricted, I thought, my lungs were flooding with blood. Yeah. I didn't realize it because my lung was punctured. So I then, like eventually, this was maybe six hours after being shot, I started to throw up all the blood that was collecting yeah. in my stomach. And when I started to throw up the blood, and it was lots of blood, like, not like, you know, you know, if you normally vomit, it's like chunks of food. This was just like water coming out, just pure blood. And then in the last bit was like a bit of coagulated blood mixed with food but it was lots okay and it obviously freaked them out freaked me out um and then all of a sudden they decided to like 
show initiative. They put me in another boat, took me down river. I don't know what was going on. I just thought, okay, maybe they've seen enough. They're taking me down um, to hospital. And this is all middle of the night now. Yeah. Then uh, eventually they like, with no indication of where we are. And I was like fading in and out of consciousness, but I kept on saying, don't fall asleep. Because if you fall asleep, you might never wake up again. So I would like throw water in my face because the boat's so, it's got such a low profile, I'd splash mm. water in my face. Or I'd say, do you have a sugar water? Because they had sugar water for me. Um, after that second community, the third community, we, uh, they pull up in the middle of the night, they just take me, out of this, the boat in that stretcher, walk me into the jungle and just put me down in the jungle and then just disappear. And at that point, I thought they were now trying to get rid of me. Yeah, you the wet blanket. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. there's a good scene in um, you know, the movie The Beach. The Beach. I haven't watched it. So in, in, in that movie, yeah. there's like um, this character who falls sick but he ruins the vibe of the whole community. So what the leaders do is they take him and they take him far out of the like community area yeah. and they let him rot and die. But no one else knows that. And I thought that I had become this guy. I was killing their vibe. They were like, let's get rid of this guy. Yeah. And they were dumping me in the jungle far enough so that I couldn't make my way back. Um, but obviously being humane enough to not want to kill me. Yeah. But then event, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> what they did is they transferred me to a fourth community. And wh what they were doing is they were, before they took me to the next community, they'd go and discuss with them, tell them the situation, and then bring them to me. Oh, because they didn't want to freak out these communities. Exactly. The, well, I didn't realize that then, but it, it okay. makes sense now. Yes. So we passed through five communities then, like I think it was about 24 hours later, we arrive at this hospital in Pukalpa. When you get to the hospital, they don't want to help me because they also want money. Even though it's a proper yeah. hospital, well, it's like a rundown hospital. Yeah, <laughs> I'd say. Medi clinic on the... Yeah, yeah. The and then I, the doctor bench. wouldn't help me, but I managed to... The doctor managed to... I got his phone from him. Yeah. So then I, I got hold of my mom. I told her what had happened. How do you tell that to your mom? Mm. Yeah. Listen... <laughs> so I first Don't freak I out. typed a message I said mom I've been shot and then I thought you can't send this like it does it it because I couldn't the doctor wouldn't let me call yeah. I had to send a message and I thought like if I if my mom hasn't heard from me for three weeks at the first she just gets a message saying mom I've been shot it's you don't know how she's going to take it so I thought okay I just sent I said mom please can you call me like just to please call yeah. me here. <laughs> <laughs> Trying to downplay it. Then when she called me, I then explained, I'm like, I've been shot, I need help. I'm at this hospital in Pukalpa. How did she take that? Yeah, she just broke down. As well as a mother could. Yeah, well, yeah, I think anyone, like yeah. anyone close to you. How are you hearing your mom's voice for the uh, first time? By that since? time, I was so drained. I was just like, I need help. Mm. Yeah. I'd cried before when yeah. I came, uh, the, the only time I cried properly was when, um, when the sun was coming up and as yeah. the sun was coming up over the jungle, I saw Pukalpa cause you can see the buildings yeah. and I thought you've made it. This is the end of the journey. You've gone through all the, the, the challenges then it's, it, to me, it was like, 
you've made it mm. right and obviously with the sun coming up i just it became that it was emotional and i hadn't slept now for like 36 hours i was completely depleted of all energy i'd been throwing up blood the whole way and then i just it was like the first time i felt like you know the journey's done you've made it you're at yeah. your destination i didn't know that i wasn't so that by that time i was like cried out i just was crying to myself got to the hospital then i was just weak i was like i need help cool. um my mom obviously crying then she went she put the phone down and then um went she, on a mission yeah went on a facebook mission she went oh, okay. on a, she typed a message my son has been shot i need help please can someone help me yeah and then that went it spread around um and then eventually what happened is uh, my uncle works for the sab yeah right and he also then his wife i think shared the message or sent and then the, her she knew other people and knew other people whose other wives and husbands who work in sab and then sab had a, a small outpost in this bukalpa area so they well, all, all through Facebook, they all got connected. Then these two guys walk in and they say, we've heard what's happened. This is like an, maybe an hour or two after that call to my mom. Like, we've heard what's happened. We're here to help. And then they told me they're from the SAB. And the, the like the irony of the, the, the story is that because I don't drink and I don't like yeah. a, uh it was just weird to have an alcohol company being there. Yeah, like being at my, savior. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and I remember I even laughed to one of the guys. Uh, he was private security for SAB. And he okay. actually stayed with me from that hospital. He, he, when we, we, we then took a commercial airliner. Um, they booked me like four I thought, seats. I thought this was insane. Yeah. This part. So when they, um, the, when the hospital eventually, they mm. said, we can't do anything this was after being in the hospital for like four hours they said yeah. there's shots in his vital organs we need to get him to another hospital in Pucalpa, uh in peru uh what's the capital of peru i forget now yeah so, we got uh, that's what mark's here for cool i think we got about how much more lima so then to get to lima it, you have to you have to to, to get to lima from Pucalpa, you have to fly over the peruvian andes and you can't get medical evacuation by helicopter or light aircraft because it's it's too dangerous for them to fly because of the altitude. So the only way we could get there was through a commercial airliner. So then what they did is they booked, um, if you imagine just like a normal mango, Kalula, yeah. they booked four seats. And because I was pretty much uh, incapacitated, yeah. they put me, they loaded the stretcher on top of the four seats and then they tied the seat belts and rope around to anchor <laughs> me onto the top of the seats. <laughs> and we but like the to me the, the the surreal thing was like this was a normal a normal airliner chicken or fish <laughs> <laughs> and oh. there were like just normal passengers yeah well i i don't like, they because they they, they, they loaded me in the back so okay. they probably try to keep it like quite inconspicuous yeah. but eventually everyone's going to realize and then if because it's all in Spanish, how do you address that? What do they say? Listen, there's a half dead guy in the back. Yeah. Please just don't look at him. Mm. Yeah. There's not much you can do. Um, so if it, we got to the hospital and there were, there were, that one guy stuck with me the whole time, the SAB guy, he, I told him how ironic it was that I don't drink and you guys are here. And it was like the first time I kind of laughed the whole 
the whole, since yeah. I'd been shot and even in the jungle, like the first time I could laugh with someone. Um, so how are the operations and stuff? So then when I got to hospital, I, they, I think they, I don't know if they put me under or if I just passed out, but I only woke up like two days later. And by that time, um, they had done a full assessment and they had picked up a shot that had punctured my heart that was still lodged in the heart, punctured carotid artery, punctured lung, a punctured windpipe, and then they they had done x-rays and there was they counted, I think it was 22 different shots all over my face, my back, my neck, and in my leg. The surface shots, like some were embedded in my skull, they took those out while I was out, but then the problem became the heart shot because it had punctured the heart and then got lodged in the septum. So if it got pushed out, it would end up in one of the ventricles and then potentially block my blood flow. So they put, they just monitored me for a long time, but then they didn't want to start doing any other surgery because I was so weak at that point. And they said that because you've had the shots in you for so long, if we start to remove them, it could yeah. potentially do more damage. So they left them. And then the first thing that they did was the carotid artery. They put a stent in there to block that up. Um, and then uh, they gave me, it's called a pneumothorax where they put a pop in between your ribs and then they, they it's it's like with a vacuum attached and it sucks out all the blood, all the internal bleeding. And I think it also sucks out the blood in your lungs. Um, and then I was in ICU for I think two weeks and then as an outpatient for another two weeks. And then they left most of the shots. Okay. Um, I you, think I think we're a bit pressed for time now. I just got some one major question was why did this guy shoot you? Do you think do you think they're looking after? Was do you think they could have been a, a drug related? Uh, uh, at this point, I think incident. it is definitely drug related, because they were young. First of all, all the guys I'd seen with guns were older guys. These guys were young. Yeah. Um, that ruthlessness they had, I never saw in any other other community. So I think they they've probably been. A, witness to murder before yeah and then what i found subsequently uh, after leaving the jungle is that because of the crackdown on drug trafficking in brazil and colombia and uh can't think of where else but the it's now been centralized in the peruvian part of the amazon so a lot of your drug trafficking is grown, it's grown there and it's trafficked out there. So, and it's now, when I was there, it was, it just, there was a, like a, a guerrilla uh, faction who's taken over that area that's politically minded, but also involved in the drug trade. So it's a hotspot for drugs. So I, yeah. I do associate the, um, those two guys being involved in the drug trade some, somehow. Okay. Sure. And so what was your next adventure after that? So after that, I then decided I wanted to pedal across the Atlantic Ocean on a pedal boat. Yeah. And I thought the reason for that is get as far away from humans as possible. Okay. Um, and then that took a long time because I had to build the boat. I had to like custom design and build a pedal boat. Yeah. With no engine. Uh, that took four years just to plan and it gave me time to like figure out okay is this what you want to do next and I was confident that I wanted to do it but then the problem there is throughout all of this 
my mom said she and I wanted to join. I think my mom had seen the opportunity that came from adventure and she thought maybe she could be a part of it too. Yeah. Um, not realizing the the realities that it is a lot tougher than you think it is. And even I, I only realized that through the Amazon. Um, but she volunteered to come and I thought, again, you want to make a, to make these adventures credible or to gain publicity, you need to have an edge to them. Doing it with your mom was my edge because lots of people have rode the oceans or pedaled the oceans. There's nothing new anymore. There's now, there's, an, there's races where you can partake in crossing the Atlantic, crossing the, crossing the Pacific. And because my mom is, um, she just, she fits a different profile. She could reach a different audience. It made sense for her to come on. And she asked me and I thought, well, by her asking, she knows what she's in for, but she didn't. So we left from Cape Town. The plan was to pedal a custom boat from Cape Town to Rio. So do the Cape to Rio route. Yeah. I had trained. I knew the boat. I was comfortable. I knew what we're going into because I surf. I know what the ocean is like. I've sailed before. So I was prepared. And I remember I used to say to my mom, we're training today. Come and spend some time in the boat. And she says, no, no, no. I don't need to. I'll go cycle. like do a spinning class. And I just want to get on it and do it. And the naivety that I always took into these adventures had helped me. And I thought she was doing the same thing. So I thought, yeah, let her be naive. Let her... Mm. um, She'll get a, a fright, but she's committed. She'll do it. And uh, we left. And then after 48 hours, we had to get rescued because she got such bad seasickness. She tore a stomach lining. So when they rescued her, uh, I got on with her. And then we moored the boat at Dusson Island. And then it took me four weeks to get the boat back because now I had to find a way to get to Dusson Island, which is a little island off Cape Town. Yeah. And then when I got to the boat... Uh, I had no partner. My window period was closing. So then I thought, okay, take the boat in. Because also they towed the boat. and it, I thought it could have damaged the boat a bit. It didn't though, but I thought, get some repairs done. And then leave again. This was in January, I think, 2016. Leave December 2016. Because your window period's like the last two weeks of December, first two weeks of Jan. Where you have favorable conditions that can push you off the coast. Okay. Um, and then I thought, okay, let me do it in December. And then as, as I got back literally a week later, after being rescued, my girlfriend, uh, said she was pregnant. So then I realized I was going to have a son and I thought I can't be doing this adventure stuff with a child coming. I was going to ask you how that was going to play a role. Yeah. I've always because if you still need a partner, we can talk. <laughs> <laughs> so I always, I always thought I'd revisit this at a later stage. Yeah. But my having my kid come, Noah. Um, all you want to do is be around your child. It's like the yeah. greatest thing you can. Exp- and the the thing is, I've never wanted kids. I always thought if I wanted a kid, I, I'll adopt a kid, because I always looked at. I used to think that humans are just inherently bad. So the less humans, the better. Mm. Um, for in terms of like uh, conservation and impact. So I always, I never wanted to have my own child. I actually wanted to get a vasectomy and then I wanted to adopt kids. Um, but then when you ha- when I had my own child, uh, it's all I wanted to be around. Yeah. And I, I didn't want to ever uh, go through something harrowing again 
while my child is still young. So I always would revisit the adventure at a later part of my life. But then when I knew that our child was going to be born in September, and I thought, okay, how can I get some quick adventures in mm -hmm. under the belt and then that's it. Yeah. So then I, I thought of this thing called Project 1000, where yeah. I do a thousand Ks running or cycling in any country and I dedicate it to the, um, the species going extinct in that country. Because we're going through a six mass extinction, I thought if you isolate it to a country and an adventure and this you make more, uh, you include more people. So then I, I would I'd say, okay, I'm going to do a thousand Ks, South Africa, address all the critically endangered species of South Africa, because everyone knows the rhino, but we have, I think, like 24 other species that people just ignore because it's not the rhino. And the rhino isn't even critically endangered, the black rhino is. So I wanted to address a lot of these, like, um, uh, conservation issues, yeah. but then I also wanted to invite people. So I invited, I put messages, feeders, and I said, anyone wants to join me, it's a micro-adventure, um, get involved. You can cycle, you can run with me. And fortunately, that first one, there was a guy, Jabu from Kimberley or something. He joined me. We just met literally the day before we were going to, and he ran with me. And then three other friends, Xavier, Pete, and Cara. I knew Pete cool. and Cara. And Xavier I also met through that venture. He joined. She got some committed friends. Yeah, well, if you think about it, like it's a great experience. Yeah, it's a th it's not diff and I, it's not difficult on a bike. Um, you're camping. You're getting to to like be a tourist mm. in in that country. It's adventurous, and a lot of people want to have something adventurous. Yeah. But you know, to do a whole river or a whole continent is difficult. Yeah. So, are you still doing this project one thousand now? No. So I did. Uh, so I, I, I'll take you through my whole evolution. So. Uh, I did the Project 1000, yeah, and then uh, my partner, Shan, was we're expecting the baby in September. So I wanted to do Project 1000, I think, in uh, January, February, March, South Africa. Project 1000, South Africa. Project 1000, Botswana, in May. Then April, Project 1000, Gabon, right? Uh, so I did South Africa, did Botswana, and then it was too close to the pregnancy, and I've, I started to feel a bit guilty about like my partner being pretty much all the way on a due date and me not being there. So I decided not to do Gabon. But then I, the Botswana, out of all the adventures I've ever done, Botswana is the only adventure that changed everything. How I looked at life, what I wanted to do with my life, and how I looked at the world and conservation as a whole. Okay, so scraping death didn't do that for you. None the, of that. The did. plains of so, Botswana did. It's it's like when people said, um, you know, people like a lot of the time when I talked about the Amazon, they're like, uh, you know, they bring in like, no, you survive for a purpose, and what's your newfound look on your newfound look on life? Yeah. And uh, I always said like, um, most of the time people have a, a change in, in heart and how they look at life after a death experience is because they weren't doing what they wanted to do prior to them almost dying. So, you know, like you, you're in an office, you hate your job, you almost die of cancer, and you're like, you know what? This is not what I want to be doing with my life. Yeah. The difference with me is I was doing what I wanted to do. I, I was, it was, to me, it was my, I had chosen that path. I had chosen to be in the Amazon. So when I almost died there, I didn't come out and say, well, maybe you need a different life. I thought, well, this is just part of life. You're lucky you survived this time. Just be more clued up when you go into the next one. 
Cool. So I had no newfound outlook on life after that. And then when people say, you know, uh, there was a purpose for you being alive, I would always say, like, death is inevitable. Sometimes you miss it by a close shave. Sometimes it gets you. But we're all going to go through it. And then it's not just unique to humans. Every other species dies at some point. You don't attribute purpose to other species. Why would you attribute it to your own uh, a human death? So it was nothing significant for me. Yes. I think the, the, the cool thing is it's just an interesting story, right? Um, but it never changed me. I never came out and thought I'm going to become a better person. I, to me, I was vegan before there. I was no drugs, no drinking. I appreciated my health. I appreciated my life. Yeah. I had reverence for other species. I had reverence for humankind. Um, so a lot of the, that like experience just reaffirmed like, you know, just carry on doing what you're doing. You're in the right place. Something will click eventually. But the Botswana trip changed everything. Um, so when we're in Botswana, there's a great video clip. I don't know. I think it's on Instagram. So if you go to my Instagram. Uh, yeah, no. no. <laughs> I think it's Davy. Yeah, yeah. So you see this. So you see that one at the tent. If you yeah. play that clip, so play that clip. Are you worried at this point? I'll, I'll talk you through this. Okay. But if you just listen to it. Guess what a motivation to run. Okay, let's talk business. So, this was like coming to the end of the adventure. And um, uh, that we literally just pulled off the main road. That's not in a national park or anything. Yeah. It's just like, imagine if, if, you know, if you're just going, let's say, somewhere familiar. You're just on the highway on the N2 yeah. and you just pull off to a part where there's bush and you set up your camp. Yeah. So now, I'd cycle the whole of Africa and I'd never seen wildlife, never saw elephants like that in the wild. I never, all you see is just goats and pigs. When I went to the Amazon, I saw little to no wildlife. Anytime I saw wildlife was if it was caught or hunted or killed. Mm. So when we're there, that was the first encounter I'd ever had of like wild animals where it's still their land and you're just a tourist really. Um, and when, that night, we must have had like 50 elephants just come through the tents. And it, because it's not a national park, there's no fence. You know, you're used to this very sterile, like Kruger Park, Shishlui game experience. Yeah. Where you're sitting in a car, 
uh, you're staying at a lodge that's got a fence. Whereas there, we just had a bicycle and fire and tents. Uh, and that's all that separated us from all the elephants. And it, it was, we didn't sleep the whole night. We were all petrified. Um, we got mock charged by elephants. And you get mock charged by an elephant, it's real fear. Because <laughs> you can't outrun it. You can't do anything. And what you're supposed to do is stand your ground or walk towards it. Yeah. <laughs> it's so easy. Uh, so many, it's so easy to say the, it's like yeah. this. That's what everyone says. Like, you know, just stand. But when you've got something that's the size of like a double decker bus running at you with the intent to mow you over, it's it's a very real fear. But it, it's a it's the fear. It's the only fear in my life that I actually wanted. It's the fear that inspired me. The other fears that I had of humans or violence, it drives me into isolation. This was a fear that I, I felt, it just, it's like a natural fear. If you think about it, like 20,000, 50,000 years ago before civilization, we lived in nature with other animals, right? Yeah. We learned how to be among them and live with them. And when I, I went through that, uh, experiencing that fear, I thought that... The adventures is to preserve this. It's to preserve the wild. But what is I really doing? Like doing an adventure and getting a bit of media coverage doesn't do anything. It doesn't change anything. Yeah. It's like a Facebook share. Exactly. It's, yeah. It's, it's like you, you, you fool yourself to think that if you're talking about it, you're actually doing it. And that's what I'd been doing the whole time is campaigning and raising money for organizations. And I found the organizations are just bigger versions of what I was doing. They're just talking about it. They're not really instigating much of the change. Yeah. Um, so at that point, I then started to look at how can I, what can I do to preserve wildlife? So I thought you become a game ranger. Because at this point, I, I realized the adventure is not doing it. Because all people want to hear about is me being shot. That's it. Or they want to hear about the challenges of the adventure. No one wanted to hear about conserving wildlife, conserving marine uh, 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 marine species. No one wanted to hear about how uh, a vegan diet could potentially eliminate a lot of the um, destructive forces we have on other species. So the whole reason that was driving me was not the reason that people wanted to know. It was like, and I just started to lose motivation for the adventure in itself because it, it was just becoming too distracting. Like the platform that I wanted, that I thought I could use to promote the message was now the only thing that people ever wanted to hear. And yeah. I would do multiple talks because I got into public speaking. I'd speak at corporates. I'd be called to events. And I would drop what I thought is like incredible, mind-breaking sobering realities of what we're doing to the, the, the wild species. And I, a lot of the solutions are, are, are theoretically, I know we could do that would have an impact. Um, no one wanted to hear that. A lot of the time I'd get called, like I'd get a call from uh, saying, you're doing a corporate talk. Please don't talk about veganism. Please don't talk about conservation. We just want to hear your story of how you survived. So then I, I started to feel like I'm now being molded into something that I don't want to be. So yeah. I lost that motivation for adventure. I thought, I don't want to do these adventures anymore. It's not why I started. It's not why I wanted to do it.
So after that Botswana experience, I thought, what is the best way to that I could in my life have a tangible impact? And the 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 it's probably a reality that we don't like to deal with. But the people who are having the biggest say on conservation is everyone who's got money. So if you look in South Africa, the biggest um, influence on wildlife is your hunting and your game farmers. Now they are only involved in that because of the the economic incentive. Yeah. There's no conservation incentive. It's the same reason why in South Africa and now actually in the world we've got more captive lions than wild lions. Because you can breed lions and you can have them shot and you can make more money than a lion that's in the wild. So, and it's going the same way with rhinos. We're now starting to farm rhinos because there's an incentive to grow their horns. So if you look at guys like John Hume, they masquerade as um, conservationists. Hunters masquerade as conservationists just because they're a small channel of money to keeping the animal alive. But what's happening is you're starting to farm all the wild animals and a farmed wild animal is an oxymoron. But the sad reality is that it's the guys with deep pockets that is literally changing all of the um, the direction of conservation. So it's sustaining wildlife, but it's for the well. The so worst sustaining wildlife possible. is not just keeping wildlife alive. Yeah, you've got chickens alive, you've got cows alive, but the uros, which is the wild cow, is dead. There's no more wild chickens. What happens when you farmed rhinos? Well, a good example is you look in India; they have more captive elephants than wild elephants so you go if you walk on the street and you see a captive elephant first of all its whole genetics has changed it's now become a domesticated animal it's now reliant on humans for feeding for um, and obviously it depends on the species but whenever you start to farm an animal its perception changes and essentially the wild counterpart goes extinct and it's happened a lot of cases already it's just most people don't know what's happening. It's like if you think about it, we have more lions and cages in Africa than we have in the bush. Yeah. There is more uh, tigers in cages than tigers in the wild. In some, some continents, like elephants, there's more elephants that are used like as domesticated animals than there are living in the jungle. Yeah. And whenever you domesticate an animal, it's what you call artificial gene selection you start to f choose that animal based on attributes that you favor so if you look at dogs you know different breeds of dogs they don't naturally occur like that they were bred for specific traits and a lot of them like a bulldog was bred for that look but it can't breathe properly so uh, what artificial se artificial selection is when a human or any artificial mm. force starts to d determine the genetic um makeup of that creature they start to manipulate it through breeding programs and it's already happening so so like a lot of those like domestic dogs that we're seeing you're seeing somewhere so, somewhere so in if the you past. look like a, a wild dog like a painted dog right yeah that's a wild dog right that that has been um its genetic structures based on evolution no human has come in and said you know what i like the color of this dog i'm going to breed it so that its color pops more so what's happened is with dogs now, all your modern dog, all the dogs that people have as pets are domesticated versions of a wild dog. But because a human is choo choosing the genetic variants and the traits, 
they start to essentially in a period of time you start to create these different creatures so all dogs are not they're not wild so what's happening is that's going the same route with wild animals so now like with the hunting organization they want buffaloes with big horns you know that's a, that's a trophy but a big horn doesn't always serve or, or what do you call the yeah it's horns uh, a big horns in the wild doesn't serve the buffalo so you can breed a buffalo that's horns are so big it can hardly keep its head up hunters love that and what will happen is that will people put more emphasis on that and they will start to push out the wild population so my uncle's a good example he farms buffalo like how you farm cow and as soon as you start to do that there's no longer an incentive or there's no reason to keep the wild ones yeah so this is what's happening already slowly but surely eventually i would say 20 years if they legalize rhino horn you'll have farmed rhinos like they'll be like cows the a rhino version of a cow a domesticated species that once they do it enough when it becomes economically viable you'll know like in two generations the way you look at a cow now is how those generations will look at a rhino or they'll look at a lion they just look at them as like tame species that are there only for an economic incentive um, so how's this now changed your view because you're saying we started this conversation with you saying you realized adventure wasn't doing it for you anymore and you realized yeah. so I, I, adventure wasn't doing it so i realized that where conservation is going is whoever's got money yeah. so then i started to become a capitalist at prior to that i was a uh, an anarchist and then I, I started to realize that if i want to make any measurable impact in my life the only way i can do it if i want to protect farm animals i can tell people to go vegan every day of the week and people don't listen i can give them the most factual reasons and they will just go into cognitive dissonance and they will just find reasons to not do it so i thought speaking to people doesn't work um uh, telling people all these concepts—it's not. This is not just me. There's lots of conservationists saying the same things that I'm saying. They just don't get heard because there's no economic incentive to say leave animals wild, don't touch them, leave yeah. them look after themselves. Because people say, well, how are we going to get money from that? So then, I, I what changed is I went from this anarch, this anarchist state of mind where I was not just anti-capitalism, anti-socialism. I was anti-everything, anti-civilization. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, mean, I want to, the whole of civilization to collapse. To be honest, when I was expecting you to come here, I was knowing you're an adventurer. I thought you were going to come and like you're beating up VW Beetle, and I yeah. saw like this Audi pop up. I'm like, oh no, it's not him. And then yeah. <laughs> I realized it was you. So, so well, teach me your ways. So well, that's because now we have a good business. Yes. Right? So then. From there, at this time, when I was doing the adventures, my partner had started a, a vegan business called Herbivore. So my goal in life, even when I was doing the adventures, I looked at from the vegan front, you can't convince people to go vegan, right? And I know, realistically, people won't adopt it. Sure. So the goal I said was that, and it, even from adventure, I said, if you, you're not going to be able to convince people to go vegan, right? Yeah. And I realized that the hard way. No matter what you can, you, no matter what approach, you can be a pacifist or you can take it aggressively. You can use information or you can use information reason or you can use emotion. Yeah. Very difficult to change people's minds, but it's a lot easier to change their behavior without them even knowing. So I started to think, well, 
if you change your goal, instead of trying to convince people to go vegan, you just say every stomach filled with vegan food is a goal. doesn't matter how it gets in there. Yeah. As long as it gets in there. And if you look at it, most of your food, your, mm. your food industry, you're not eating what you think you're eating. You're eating what's marketed to appeal to what you think you want. Yeah. I know it, that sounds silly, but like you don't have to be a vegan to eat vegan food. Yeah, exactly. So the majority of like our customers aren't vegan. They don't even know it's vegan. They're just eating it because it either tastes nice or it looks nice or yeah. it has some health attributes to it. Um, so I, th I started to say, well, there's, yeah, there's two goals, right? And obviously money comes into all of them. Yeah. How many get people to get any opportunity to fill a stomach with a vegan meal, whether you tell them or whether they buy it by default, right? You don't have to convince them to go vegan. But to me, that was my personal goal. Because yes. if your stomach's full of vegan food, you're not going to go eat an animal right and then i said so from there start to look at to uh, go to a farm sanctuary so to buy farmland and to start because i can go into gumtree and i can buy chicken for 250 bucks i can buy uh, ten thousand chickens and i don't have to convert one person to go vegan and there i've saved ten thousand lives so then i we, we were going to buy a farm four years ago and then um, the violence and the murders yeah. in South Africa really put us off. Um, so I said, we're going to have to look at another country. And then besides opening up a farm sanctuary, the next goal was to look at buying land and just leaving it to animals. Just saying it's your land because it was their mm. land before humans created oh, property. Like rights. elephants in Exactly. And when I went to Botswana, that's where I saw that it is possible. Elephants can live as long as you give them, or not just elephants, but all wildlife can exist if you just give them enough land to do yes. so. So that's essentially where I'm at now, is that I know all this information. No one wants to listen to it. No one cares. So I thought using trying to have an information war is not going to win. You need physical results. Yeah. You need to get people to eat vegan food any way you can, and you need to buy up land and start buying up farm animals like you can buy on Gumtree and buy, I can go buy elephants, I can go buy anything. And that's now where my position has come as I've become a, I've become a filthy capitalist. But my only reason now is I want to make a lot of money just to yeah. buy land for animals and just push people away. Oh, that's uh, insane. What yeah. a clever approach. Yeah, it's, it's, but the, to be honest, it's not my approach. I've copied other guys. Yeah. The other guys doing similar things. They just haven't pieced well, it all together. So now I'm at a point where um, I, I don't even really talk about the adventures. I think this is the first time in like a year really? that I've actually spoken about it with anyone. I don't, I've just like pushed it out of my life. It's now my personal experience that I kind of go through. Yeah. And now I just have one sole focus is um, uh, farmland and wildland and get it any way I can. That's insane. Yeah. Well, well done, Davey. Much respect to you, man. Yeah, thanks. Uh, oh, I forgot. You got your book. If people still want to hear your story, even though this podcast is, is probably a, a great in-depth version, yeah. um, where can they find this? I think just go to my website, davidupercy.com and... Uh, it's all there but i've awesome. given the whole nice story the you've got yeah. more than the whole story in cool. the podcast awesome well i'll need this one sound just add some value yeah. you'll see it on gumtree later awesome <laughs> <laughs> great thanks so much davy thank you thanks Cheers. for having me